Hi, and welcome to the Well Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we are librarians who love to read and talk about books. And today we're discussing books that have been or will be adapted for the screen. And I'm so excited for this episode. <laughs> I didn't even realize how excited I was until I, until I started preparing for yeah. it. And I realized, like, I love this so much. So yeah. why do you think we like this topic so much? It's just so satisfying to read a book and then see how people interpret it. I mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it's fun to see if you, the way you imagined it is the same way that someone else does. And I love, I, I'm not of the opinion that you have to do a, a completely faithful adaptation. I guess sometimes I do. I, I know that I used to really, really feel that way. And now I think it's kind of fun to see sort of artistic license and just just how someone conveys that information into a different medium. I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's just completely fascinating. So something like Big Little Lies, I loved watching that because I kept thinking he's this director is making choices that I would never have thought to make in sort of the style of it and the way he mm-hmm. would do quick cuts on on mm-hmm. uh, images. And it just was not at all how I would approach it. I'm not a filmmaker. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad that I'm not the one that's doing it. But it it was it's just completely fascinating to watch those decisions being made so I would say even when it's not the way I pictured it in my mind and I will say I'm not a huge hugely visual reader like I think that there are people people read in different ways like I think some people definitely are picturing every single character and every single scene and stuff in their head I am not that way as much I mean there are times I certainly do that yeah generally I just like read and I'm comprehending the story and I'm not take, I'm not like building it in my mind yeah, but there's certainly sort of like impressions I get of the way characters look or the way the scenery is or whatever so yeah I think Big Little Lies is a great example of that because it turned the book into something so visually different than I expected and not visually I don't know how to say like it brought something more to the book and yeah, I don't know I totally. loved the book I, I mean I love Leanne Moriarty but I I thoroughly enjoyed that TV show and I haven't watched season two yet but I I've, I have seen season one and I felt like it even though it was the same story it was like an entirely different experience watching it that even though I knew yeah. how it was going to end and everything I don't know I just it, it it was a really in my opinion that was a great adaptation of a book yeah exactly it felt so much more dynamic I think yes, than the, yes. than the book even yeah even though the book there's nothing wrong with the book it's not as mm-hmm. though I thought oh that book was lacking in any way but it just it added a spark to yes yeah everything in the way it was adapted so absolutely it feels like to me that there are more and more and more adaptations of books that are being made than than previously I mean I feel like I don't know like 75 percent of the tv or movies that I hear about I feel like are based on books I don't know where that comes from, but it's it's super fun to see, like, especially if you read a book when it first comes out and you could start speculating, like, oh, is this going to be picked up for a TV or a movie? Yeah. Yeah. And, and almost always the answer is yes, it will be. Yes, yes it will be. <laughs> I actually co-wrote an article about this for work. And so I, I did some research on it. And so from what I found, Lord of the Rings is credited with starting that. Mm. So... Because if you look back on, I can't remember the name of the, of the website, but uh, it shows the top grossing movies from every year and you can just keep going and going and going. And it's basically 
in whatever 2001 or 2002 was the first Lord of the Rings movie then Mm -hmm. then suddenly after that like five to eight to ten of the movie the highest grossing movies are based on previously published stuff so so now that's a lot of that is superheroes but but still that counts and before that it's really really not the case like there might be one to two so it's it's just interesting that something can be a cultural phenomenon and completely change the way that we choose which stories to tell that is crazy that would that would make sense that that sort of spurred it and that what was interesting for that and maybe superhero movies as well is that there's a built-in audience there right because exactly. people loved the lord of the rings world so much that they knew that people were going to come see that movie or those movies yeah. either because they wanted to like hate on it a little bit or they loved yeah, it so yeah. like, whatever it was it was like they knew they had people who were interested in that movie right from the get-go because of yeah. how popular the books were so well the in this article then i found out the i, I re-looked up my article i don't know these statistics off the top of my head but i had to look <laughs> up what i wrote um so this british study was conducted that found that film adaptations of or films of adaptations I should say gross mm-hmm. 53% more than original screenplays and for TV it's a 58% higher viewership if it's wow. been previously published so that's that's significant so of course it's in the producer's best interest to mm-hmm. um, or the the whatever mm-hmm production company or media conglomerate i don't know what you call these things um, to to do whatever is going to make them the most money so um if books are doing it then that's great well and the other thing that i wonder about is if it if it's you know if a tv show or movie is coming out and it's based on a book you can maintain some more buzz if there's a book first because people start reading it and talking about it ahead of time. Yeah. They know that. So like all three books that I'm talking about today are forthcoming series. Mm-hmm. So I would imagine that there are people who would read somewhere that these books are becoming TV series or movies and say, oh, well, I want to read that before I see it. Yeah. So yeah. it's like and sort of its kind of own. Get like a second round of it right because you get the first the first uh interpretation and then everyone says oh yeah that movie's about to come out i always meant to read that or i read that a year ago i want to reread that so right yeah it just helps with everything so um so one of the things that i i put in our notes is that tana french the dublin murder squad series is being made into a tv show for i think it's stars yeah Yeah. So how do we feel about that? Because as everybody knows who's listening, we love Tana French. So how do we feel about the series being made? So excited, but also so scared. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of wanted to talk about the fear of something you really, really love being adapted. And Mm -hmm. it it can go so wrong. (laughs) So (laughs) and you don't want to like, I I know that it doesn't really affect the reading experience, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it can when you when you picture, then you can't get like a terrible actor out of your mm-hmm. head mm-hmm. And when you read the book. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, th- I'm, I think overall I'm excited about okay. it. Okay. Um, I kind of think it's strange that they're putting it, putting the first two books into one story. I don't quite understand how that's going to work. Yeah, me neither. We won't go into detail about what those two books are about, but 
Tana French in the Dublin Murder Squad series takes like a secondary character from a previous book generally and puts it in as the main character. And so in the first book, the main character is a detective and it's his partner, right? Who becomes the main character in the second book. Right. Is that right? Yeah. And so yep. she does not, she plays a role in the first book, but not a huge role, but they're entirely separate storylines. Like they're, they're separate right. investigations and storylines. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, and he doesn't really even make an appearance in the second book. I don't think the main character from the first. So I don't think so. Or maybe like a very brief one. I don't remember. But I know that that'll be interesting sort of to see. A sense of the fallout of the mm-hmm. first book from the second right. book, or, or the the impact of what happens in the first book definitely informs the second book. But it's not it's not like they tell you what happened in the first book. You just get a sense of yeah. why she's in the place she is right. because right. of what happened in the first book. Right. Right. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. I am yeah. excited about that one. I do have to say, I think that I sort of fell off, but Outlander I watched, which I believe is also a stars TV show. And I thought they did a really good job adapting the Outlander oh, books yeah. for TV. So I am cautiously hopeful that at least that network knows what they're doing yeah. with a book to series well, adaptation. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited for it. Okay, so now do you feel like the book is always better than the movie or TV show, or are you more moderate about it than that? I think I'm more moderate. I, don't, I didn't, I used to always think that the book was better, but I've, I'm talking about one book today where I, I do think that they made it a more enjoyable experience in the movie. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I would probably always err on the side of the book is better but but I don't think it has to be I think that sometimes there can be a really great kind of kernel of a story Mm -hmm. that then gets expanded into something more lush in a in a filmed version Mm -hmm. yeah I will say um I generally am not a super hardcore like oh the book is always better than the movie although generally I feel like the book can be the book can give you more context and more information and than a movie could um, now that we're seeing TV shows made of some of these books, I don't tend to feel that way as much because they do have the time yeah. that in a movie you don't have. And I will say that there is one relatively recent movie that I thought was better than the book, which was, or that not that it was better, I enjoyed it more, which was Brooklyn. Yeah. Did you see that movie? Oh, yeah, I watched it with you when I... Uh, Did we watch that together? Recovering. <laughs> yeah. Remember I cried and was trying to pretend I wasn't crying? <laughs> I don't remember that. I'm sorry. I've seen oh, that's it a couple good. Then of you times. didn't know I was. <laughs> I loved that movie. I am all about like the bittersweet melancholy love stories. Yeah. And I thought that that movie was so beautiful. I just thought that Saoirse Ronan did such a good job. And I read the book and liked it, but I did not feel as moved by it as I did by the movie. So yeah. that is an example where I thought that what they did with the movie and the book was very spare and so it just didn't wring those emotions from me the way the movie did well there's things in that movie too where it's just a a, the thing that i remember the most from it are the relationships that she has with her family Mm -hmm. that that she leaves behind and and you there are things conveyed by someone's face that that show like heartbreak in ways that i don't think would make me cry I, I mm-hmm. very, very rarely cry when I read books, but I cry all the time when I watch movies. So mm-hmm. I think that there's something to be said for mm-hmm. that ability to just to show 
a human emotion um, mm-hmm. very succinctly, but but it sort of just gets at you. Yeah, I would agree with that. We've rambled on a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I do want to say that I've already discussed the absolute best book to movie adaptation ever, which is The Worst Witch, which I talked about on the last episode. <laughs> And somebody told (laughs) us on Facebook, the classic, the worst witch, that somebody told us on Facebook that there's a TV show, like a current-ish TV show on Netflix. So I think um, that's the one that I I thought was the older one. I know I've seen it on Netflix. And so like like scrolling, I've seen the the name, the worst witch. And so I think that I just assumed that was the original. But yeah, new one. Yeah. Yeah, and it's with somebody who's on Game of Thrones, which is, who was an awesome character on really? Game of Thrones. Yeah, so now I kind of want to watch The Worst Witch. So, anyway, that's my little <laughs> like you, digression. You don't pretend you didn't already want to. Well, obviously, I already <laughs> wanted to, but I wanted to watch the movie again. Now I know there's a TV show. Yeah, I'd watch both. All right, let's dive in. What is your first book-to-screen adaptation book? The uh, first one I'm going to talk about is Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor <gasps> Jenkins Reid. Yeah, we we kind of d- we didn't fight over who was going to talk about this, but we both we both wanted to, and then mm-hmm. we decided, oh, this is great because we have so many options. So so I I did it. So this is one of my favorite books of the year. I'll probably mention it, it again on our best of the year episode, and I know that I am definitely not alone in that because this was a, a Hello Sunshine uh, book cl- club pick, which is Reese Witherspoon's book club. And I, you may disagree with this, but I kind of feel like this is Taylor Jenkins Reid's breakout book. Would you, would you agree with that? Or do you think that Seven Husbands is? Seven Husbands might have been. I think that this though is giving her like street cred, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Definitely. I think this got more attention, but I do think, I don't know. I think she became more of a name after Seven Husbands. For sure. I, I feel like this made her a household name. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's really exciting, but it, and now it seems like retroact- retroactively, uh, her previous books are being optioned, mm-hmm. which is very cool to see. So, yes. I'm all set for all the Taylor Jenkins read yes. adaptations that I can have. Love so, um, so this, uh, if you haven't read it, it's written as an oral history of a legendary band from the 1970s, and they only had one album, and they broke up suddenly the night of this massive arena concert, and no one knows why. So the book is is basically the key players um, finally telling what happened on that night and what happened to uh, lead up to it. So Daisy Jones is an it girl of the LA rock scene and she's gorgeous and charismatic, but she's deeply troubled kind of underneath the surface and she's addicted to drugs. And so she starts out as a groupie in LA, but she wants more. And she basically has too strong of a personality to be in the shadow of any of the men that are uh, getting more attention than she is. She um, has this notebook of ideas and basically is maybe a a genius songwriter, but she can't Mm -hmm. actually put a song together. So Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, Billy Dunn uh, has started a band and they're called The Six and he started it with his brother and some friends and he's the guitarist and the front man, but he basically does everything. He's, He's completely in control of the band. And the group is starting to get some attention and they sort of have middling success. Um, they haven't really made anything big yet. So as 
they're starting to to get some attention, then success is going to Billy's head. He um, had previously married his high school sweetheart, Camilla, and they have, I think, one kid at this point. They, they, they have more later, but he, he has a family. He's supposed to be this family man, but he cheats on her and he's given into alcoholism. But Camilla stays with him and she gets him out of it. And so he is fiercely loyal to her and really sees her as his salvation and sort of the rock that he depends on in, in this crazy rock world. So Daisy and Billy are brought together by a producer for a collaboration. And I think it's been a while since I've read this. I think it's just supposed to be a one-off Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one, like one song. Yeah. And so the result is magical. There's just instant chemistry. Everyone can see it. They know that this is this is um, going to be big. And they everyone can tell that they both have the pieces to be huge, but that they don't have all of the pieces individually. They need to be together to make everything perfect. So they decide to form a single band called Daisy Jones and the Six. And from the beginning, there's a lot of tension. So there's resentment that Daisy is in the band at all and then the band and Daisy resent that Billy has so much control over, over everything and then there's all the, there's also this obvious chemistry between Daisy and Billy that sort of adds the sexual tension to the group that hadn't been there before so the book documents the creation of the band's iconic album Aurora and everything that was happening behind the scenes that sort of informed the lyrics and the sound of the album um, and it also documents what happened in the end to make it all fall apart and so as I was reading this I kept having to remind myself that this was fiction I felt like I was going to die if I didn't see the clips that they were talking about in the book so they talk about this kind of iconic SNL clip um, or performance that that they do and I felt like like I kept opening YouTube so I could listen (laughs) to these songs and then I'd remember oh yeah this isn't this isn't real I can't do that and so I don't know that I've ever had that experience reading something before. It just felt so cinematic. And I don't think I've ever had such a strong reaction to to see this in front of me before. Um, mm-hmm. I read a lot of books that I've wanted to see adapted, but I don't think I've ever felt so tricked into thinking it was real mm-hmm. as I did with this. So, so when it was published, it came out in March of this year I think and it had already been announced last year in the summer that it was going to be adapted into a 13 episode series for Amazon and that will be executive produced by Reese Reese Witherspoon and I don't think it can come come soon enough I know I agree need to watch it right now yes Um, oh go ahead this is I was just gonna say this is also one of my favorite books of the year so we're gonna have to do a joint one probably for our favorite episode yeah Um, but I I so it's funny I wasn't as much like trying to watch videos of them I kept thinking I wanted to listen to their music like I wanted to have my headphones and listening to their music as I was reading it felt so realistic yeah it has been a long time I think since I read a book that felt so grounded in like this these could be real people this could be a real band. Yeah. I just, it was, it, and that the oral history format, I think, is part of what, it lended itself well to that feeling, yeah. I think, because you're just immersed in these characters talking about their experiences. It felt very, like, intimate. Like, you felt like totally. you knew what was going on in their head. So, yeah, yeah. I just love this book. Well, and, and all the side characters felt fleshed out, too, but not they weren't taking over the story but you there's side stories that are going on that aren't really a part of the whole daisy billy uh, mm-hmm. dynamic and so it just it, it just felt so 
so real. So um, Taylor Jenkins Reid has said this is heavily based on the story of Fleetwood Mac, which mm-hmm. I think is, is yeah. pretty obvious. So in the meantime, I've been placating myself by watching clips <laughs> of their performances. And so the one, I, I know it's pretty famous, but they have this reunion show from the 90s where... Uh, uh, Stevie Nicks is singing a song called Silver Springs and she's just singing it at Lindsay Cunningham and it's mm-hmm. about their failed relationship and that song apparently was kept off the Rumors album um, sort of politically by the rest of the band and it's it's a pretty intense little clip so that's been fun too. Definitely a, a, a story before my time but one that's it's very has a lot of spark to it still to, yeah. to read about. So it's okay. it's just such a fun homage to this time period. And um, I don't think there's a lot of 70s historical fiction out there that's starting to change a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's such a great book. That mm-hmm. is Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Thoroughly, thoroughly approve of that choice. Hooray. <laughs> so my first one is actually, it's a series. It's not just one single book, although I will talk about the first book in the series. That is uh, the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. It is coming to Netflix in 2020. They're filming it right now. So if you follow the author on Instagram, she's posting videos and and photos from being on the set, which is pretty awesome. This is part of the deal that was announced. I think it was last year or the very beginning of this year that Shonda Rhimes was developing eight new shows for Netflix. And this is one of them. So, oh, yeah. you know, you know who Shonda Rhimes is. Like the, the Grey's Anatomy scandal, <laughs> mega producer, writer, person. So this is one of the shows that she is creating. It's a Regency romance series, which I don't know that I would have assumed that Shonda Rhimes would have been interested in. Totally. Filming. But it sort of makes sense because when you look at what she creates well, it's very dramatic and lots of love and love triangles kind of things and so it makes sense that a romance would fit in there but uh, this is one of my favorite favorite romance series so it is eight books about siblings they are alphabetically named so i'm going to read off what their names are because it makes me laugh anthony benedict colin (laughs) daphne eloise francesca gregory and hyacinth and so the first one though start the first one's about daphne the fourth uh, sibling, but then after that, it goes in order with um, alphabetically about who it's about because that's their ages. Uh, is Anthony's the oldest, and then Hyacinth is the youngest. Like many romance series, I've talked about this before, you don't have to read them in order. But in this, there is something I will warn people about if you are interested in reading these. Is there's this uh, like society paper anonymous person named Lady Whistledown who does these little columns that are like, you know, all the gossip that's happening in the Ooh. in the uh, society. And so she so chapters will start with these little missives from Lady Whistledown that are in these papers and the characters talk about it. And it's like, who is she that she knows all this stuff about all the stuff that's happening? And Julie Andrews is actually going to be the voiceover in the series for Lady Whistledown. Oh my gosh, I want to watch this right now. So one thing I will say is there is a book midway through that that reveals who Lady Whistledown is. So that would be some, I would just caution people that that would be something if you're concerned that you don't don't want that surprise ruined, you do need to start at the beginning and read because otherwise if you came in at like book seven, you're going to know that Lady Whistledown is whoever and and that might ruin some of the mystery from the earlier books. And not mystery, it's like a little like hint of intrigue. It's not, they're not mysterious yeah. at all. 
But so the first book is called The Duke and I. And like I said, it's about Daphne. She's the fourth sibling. It is one of my favorite tropes in romance, which is the fake relationship trope, where one a friend of her brother's, the Duke of Hastings, is this very like eligible bachelor in London. And he wants to avoid all of these meddling women that want him to marry their daughter to avoid having to just deal with any of them. And Daphne is getting a little bit up there in years for the time and is sort of teetering on the brink of being a spinster. And so they come to this agreement that they are going to have this fake relationship so that it will keep these meddling mothers off of his back. And it might make her look more appealing because he's such a catch that other men might look and be like, ooh, what does she have? You know, because he's interested in her. And, and so the idea is that he will court her and then propose to her at some point, but never actually propose to her. But that's going to be what the the setup is that everybody else think is happening. So it's going to benefit the two of them. As you would guess, the more time they spend together, they start liking each other and maybe having some feelings for each other that are more romantic, end up getting together at the end. And this whole series is just so delightful. Like it is funny. It is charming. It is super light and frothy. There is nothing like terrible that really happens at any moment. It's just all fun and happy. And I I just, I love them. They're the, I've read them more than once, uh, all eight of them. Oh, wow. And that's not something I can say often. But it's like once I read one, it's like potato chips. Once I read one, it's like, well, then I want to read the next sibling story and the next sibling story and the next one, next one. Uh, so that is the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. Starts with The Duke and I, and it's coming to Netflix in 2020. That sounds so good. That's one, that too, so where it when you heard it announced, it, it instantly, it was like the subculture rose up. I yes, was so yes. excited about it. And yes. And yeah. I didn't realize that there was that much effect. Like I knew Julia Quinn was a, a giant author, but I didn't realize mm-hmm. there was that much affection for the series. So yeah, it's one of the like sort of more modern classic series in romance. I yeah. would say really, it's it's sort of the newer wave of modern historical romance, like fresh historical romance, not yeah. like the bodice rippers that some people think of from like the seventies and eighties. These were all published in the 2000-2010 time frame and now there's sort of like a spin-off series about their aunts and uncles I oh. think it's like a pre prior prior to when these take place I would say that she just effortlessly is really writes these really witty charming funny books it's like popcorn like it's yeah. just so easy to read and they're fun and the characters are super likable and you just like smile the whole time you know they're probably not gonna make at least they don't make me like laugh out loud but they make me happy they make me happy and sometimes it's just when you want an escape from real life or the you know the real world bad things might be happening you just need an escape these are a perfect escape that sounds great Uh, My next book is A Simple Favor by Darcy Bell. And as I said earlier, there's, I was going to talk about a book that I thought the movie is better. And I, that's Mm -hmm. not a knock against the book. It's just that the movie for this is so much fun. Have you read this, Mm -hmm. this one? I haven't read this or seen the movie. No, I know. I've heard about the movie. A podcast I listened to talked about it at one point and made me want to see the movie. Yeah, you've got to see uh, the movie. You would love it. Yeah. 
So this is um, Psychological Suspense. It came out a couple of years ago, and it's told in alternating perspectives by a young mother named Stephanie and her friend Emily. And Stephanie is a young widow in Connecticut, and she has one son that's in elementary school. Um, I can't remember exactly how old he is, whether it's kindergarten or first grade, but on the younger side of elementary school. And she is a very traditional mommy blogger. So her perspective... I don't know if everything in her perspective is told through her blog or if it's just parts of it, but it's if you think of all of the sort of stereotypes about mommy blogs, then mm-hmm. that's how this is written. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so she meets Emily at school pickup, and Emily is glamorous, and she has a su- successful career in the city, and she has a handsome husband, and um, she's just kind of the opposite of, of Stephanie, and, and Stephanie's kind of enamored by her. And she has a son that's in the same class as Stephanie's son. So they become friends and Emily has this way of drawing out secrets. So Stephanie will tell her things that she's never told anyone else because she she basically really wants Emily to like her, but also to see her as sophisticated because she sort of gives off this air of desperation because she feels so lacking compared to everything that Emily has. So, um, so they just have this kind of it's a friendship but it but it's sort of unusual where where it doesn't really feel i guess there's lots of friendships that are like that where where one person has a lot more control or a lot more mm-hmm. uh social clout than the other so right right um yeah so so one day emily asks stephanie if she can pick up her son nikki after school and stephanie says yes that's no big deal and then emily never comes for him and she doesn't call and she doesn't text and then she doesn't respond to anything that stephanie sends out so she knows that emily would never abandon nikki um and that something has to be very wrong so she reaches out to emily's husband sean for help and I can't remember exactly how it plays out in the book, but eventually Emily's body is found. And in their grief, then Emily and Sean grow, clo- grow close together. And it seems like this is maybe the one positive of the situation is that they've found each other when they're both mourning. But, you know, Stephanie's mourning her friend and, and Sean is mourning his wife, but uh, Stephanie is also mourning her husband. And so she they, they just find a lot of comfort from each other. So... It sort of seems like Stephanie's life is is kind of on the up from her friend dying, which is kind of a terrible thing to say, but it, it's kind of going that direction. Um, but then she starts to find out things about Emily that throw everything into chaos. And I, I spent too long trying to remember how this plays out in the book. I remember how it plays out in the movie, but I can't remember in the book how it how it plays out. But it's it's lots of drama. Nothing has been what it seemed. So uh, as, as, you know, how all psychological suspense sort of goes. So the movie came out last year and it's just so stylish and over the top and funny. And it sort of takes the, the book doesn't have a comic sensibility at all. It's, it's Mm -hmm. just your typical psychological suspense. So the movie really plays on, on that a lot and plays, plays it up into comedy which but it's also not like a laugh out loud funny movie there's not jokes it's just it's completely tongue-in-cheek and it's so self-aware and that and that just makes it into a really fun 
I keep wanting to say a comedy, but it's not exactly. Yeah. But, but it is also isn't a comedy. So it has uh, Anna Kendrick as Stephanie and Blake Lively as Emily, um, plus our mutual favorite, the delectable Henry Golding as Sean. And oh, yeah, this so is dreamy. again why you need so to see dreamy. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can tell that every single character or actor is having a fabulous time being there. They're mm-hmm. they're just really leaning into these characters. And Blake Lively Lively's clothes are insane. And mm-hmm. I could watch it just on silent and watch the clothes because they're just so incredible. You can't take your eyes off her for the entire movie. Um, not just because she's like the most beautiful woman that's ever existed but because she's just so stylish and so charismatic in this in this role like i said it has a very tongue-in-cheek sensibility and it has this soundtrack that's full of 1960s french songs that sort of give it this very slinky and sensual vibe and it's it's just such a good time it's i saw this in the theater and i just had a smile on my face the whole time because it's it's just so much fun so i will say that the plot rotates around some very uh, taboo topics, um, which is okay. kind of a surprise in both the book and the movie. Um, it deals with some things that are just not done in most media. So be forewarned oh. about that. But the, the movie is just so ridiculously fun. So I would very highly recommend it. And that is A Simple Favor by Darcy Bell. So would you recommend that I just watch the movie or should I read the book before I watch the movie? I think you could get away with just watching the movie. I don't, okay. you, know, you know, we're a book podcast, so I don't want to say don't read the book. But I think that if you're a fan of psychological suspense, this is a solid psychological suspense novel. But if you're not, then you would be just fine watching, watching. the movie. All right. So my next one is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Uh, it is, yay, also being adapted by... Is it Hello Sunshine? I just lost it. Uh, Reese Witherspoon's yes. production company. Yes. <laughs> I thought that's what it was, but it didn't sound right. She has so out. many arms that are called Hello Sunshine, too. So I'm I know. always. Yeah. Like, I thought that was yeah. just the book club. And then I started looking it up and realized that it's sort of everything she does. And then. Yeah. She has a clothing company called Draper James. Oh, yeah. So, that's true, too. But Hello Sunshine is like her book, media, television, movie production thing. So it is coming as a limited series on Hulu in 2020, and it is starring Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington, and also Joshua Jackson, who played Pacey Witter in Dawson's Creek, and then more recently was on the show The Affair, and I love him. Like, I just will watch anything. I don't know why. There's just something about him. I will watch anything. But Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington in their own right, I would probably watch this no matter what. And it is about a family named the Richardsons, who they live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. It takes place in the late 90s. I think it's like 1997 that it starts. And Shaker Heights is supposed to be kind of this idyllic suburban paradise where it's super, like they're super open-minded and stuff, but they're also very averse to change. Like nothing, like things are going to be very steady and it's very pristine and just sort of like everything is perfect. Like you would imagine this like utopia um, like very and so American the mo- dream kind very of Very American dream, exactly, yes. Uh, and so the mother of the family, Elena, had inherited a house from her parents, and she rents it out. And she rents it to this woman, a single mother who is an artist. Her name is Mia, and Mia's 15-year-old daughter, Pearl. She sort of thinks she's doing something nice and beneficial for this woman who's a single mother and she's maybe a struggling artist and she's like I'm going to do I'm going to be so gracious and I'm going to let her rent our our house 
but pretty much immediately their lives become intertwined in ways that they just never, never expected. The youngest Richardson daughter, who's a bit of an outcast and sort of, you know, not too happy with her her lot in life, becomes enamored of Mia and spends a ton of time with her. So already there's sort of like a simmering kind of tension that's happening between Elena and Mia in particular. Like Mia lives this sort of very artist lifestyle where she's super cool and so the fact that Elena's daughter prefers spending time with her instead of Elena really bothers her and so there's all this stuff that's happening and then a friend of Elena's is in the process of adopting a child when the mother decides that she regrets the decision to give up the baby and wants her child back she doesn't want her to be adopted and Mia knows the mother of the the birth mother of the child so Elena knows the adoptive mother and Mia knows the birth mother and so that puts them at odds to each other so there's this custody battle going on at the same time there are all these layers of secrets that all of these people are keeping so the richardsons have their secrets mia has her secrets kids have their secrets and pearl has a secret everybody's having a secret and as you would imagine in this sort of dramatic family story all of the secrets start coming out. So it is all about kind of what it means to be a family, what it means to be loyal, what it means to trust somebody. And the characters just, to me, felt like really fully formed people. They felt flawed in a way that real people feel flawed. Like they didn't feel like extreme versions. It felt like good intentioned people who sometimes don't make the best decisions or make a decision because they think it's for the best and then realize after the fact that the ramifications weren't what they expected. So it all feels very true. And, and the teenagers in particular, I think, felt real about the way that they react to things. So I just loved it. I thought it, the, the year that I read this, in fact, I'm guessing I've already talked about this book on the podcast, but it was one of my favorite books I read that year. And I would imagine it's going to make a stellar television show. I just think yeah. there's so much there. I love the fact that it's not a movie. It's a limited TV series. So they, they could really flesh out a lot of this stuff. Um, and I could totally see Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington in the roles that they're playing. And so I just can't wait for it. That is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Yeah, that's going to be amazing, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. book where I... I think about it all the time, but I have to remind myself it's all the same book and not like I'll think of something from that book and I'll I'll try to remember what book it's from. And I'm like, oh, that's also from Little Fires Everywhere. Oh, really? There's just so many storylines going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because she just it isn't just one one track of conflict. There's like Mm -hmm. five tracks of conflict that are going on Mm -hmm. simultaneously. And um, and so you it could be a book about adoption it could be a book Mm -hmm. about cultural appropriation it could be a Mm -hmm. book about um family secrets like there's just so Mm -hmm. many things that are playing into it that Mm -hmm. um that i don't think you see as uh, i'm sure plenty of books do that all the time but it just i haven't read as many that feel that rich as this one so yeah i really really love it okay so my last book is persuasion by jane austen and I had to cover this because Jane Austen adaptations are my favorite. And <laughs> so you can't have a, an adaptation episode without one um, mentioned. And I also uh, really felt like I wanted to talk about this because I was discussing with a friend 
Jane Austen just generally, and she she said that this is her favorite novel or her favorite Austen novel, um, but she hadn't seen the movie. And I felt like this could not stand. And there probably are others that don't know about it as well, which I, I just can't handle that. So, so I want to make sure everyone knows about this gem of a movie. So Persuasion is about a woman named Anne Elliot, and she is 27. And she, uh, because this is old timey times, she's considered an old maid at 27. And she lives with her father and I think it's her older sister, which I don't get why her older sister isn't considered an old maid when she's also not married. But this is the world we live in. So um, years before, Anne had been proposed to by a naval officer named Frederick Wentworth. And he was a good man, but he didn't have any family connections or wealth. And so Anne was persuaded to reject uh, this proposal um, by a good friend of hers since the family, um, since her family had wealth and high status and they all feel like she can make a better match. But Anne doesn't end up meeting anyone else and the book opens with the Elliot family on the brink of financial ruin due to the father's and I think the sister's extravagant lifestyle. So mm-hmm. Anne is really the only level-headed member of the family and she persuades her father and sister to to move to more modest lodgings in the city of Bath and that they'll rent out the family estate. And their estate is uh, is going to be rented out by Wentworth's sister. So they're all going to be put into the, into the same social circle again. And now Captain Wentworth, um, as he, I was going to say Captain Wentworth is now a captain, <laughs> which is redundant. I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> um, and he's a hero of the Napoleonic Wars, and he is rich now, and he's well-respected, and he's considered an extremely eligible back- bachelor. And he flirts with other girls in front of Anne, and he calls her much changed, and he just seems completely indifferent to her. And this all really hurts Anne, and she feels that he... It's not that she's exactly holding a candle for him, but she feels that he still hates her uh, for rejecting him, and she, she very much regrets that. And there's tons of things that happen in this book. It's kind of too much to go into of all the different things that... Um, all the different ways they're thrown together and the way that drama builds. Obviously, because this is Jane Austen, there's lots of uh, things that will happen that will make you squeal, but it's also the most bittersweet of her books, I would say. It kind of has this... It's filled with a sadness at seeing a moment pass you by and having made bad decisions in your past and watching someone you love move on. But because it's Jane Austen, it's it's ultimately hopeful. And I think this probably is my favorite ending of all of her books. I definitely think it's the most satisfying of, of any of her endings. And I, I really love it because it reminds me that the story is never over. We don't know what will happen around the corner in our lives. And, and uh, I find a lot of comfort in that. So this might be my favorite of the movie adaptations of, of Jane Austen. That's hard to say because I really love the 95 Pride and Prejudice, but this is right up there with it for me. Um, it has Amanda Root and Killian Hines, and um, I don't think they're really household names, but you'll definitely recognize them from other period adaptations if, if you um, are a fan of those. And mm-hmm. it feels very quiet, and I would say it feels the most true to life than other adaptations. It, it's mm-hmm. filmed in a really low light, like everything is lit by candlelight, and they filmed it on location in Bath. And the actors all look like real people instead of kind of these supernaturally beautiful beings that are in all Jane Austen uh, adaptations at this point. So they're they're all still, you know, attractive because they're actors, but they, they just feel 
more real, I think, than than mm. anything that's done right now. So, again, this has the greatest ending ever, and uh, there's a more recent adaptation that I don't love as much because it doesn't do anything as well as this one. This is just the perfect Austin adaptation as far as I'm concerned. So I know I've told this before because I've talked about this book before, but I read this when I was 16 and I completely completely identified with it as a 16-year-old, which is kind of hilarious that at 16 I was like, I'm an old maid. So... <laughs> I don't, oh, for a 16-year-old, Anne. Yeah, very melancholy 16-year-old. But I, I have only grown to love it more the older I've gotten. And it's it's just, to me, the perfect novel. And that is Persuasion by Jane Austen. I wholeheartedly agree. I love the book. I love the movie. It's so great. Yeah. So it's, good. It's wonderful. My last one is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. This was one of my favorite romances I read this year, and it has been acquired by Amazon, and it is, I don't know whether it's going to be a movie or a TV show. I could see it just being a movie, actually, but I, I don't know which is planned. All, all, the only notification so far that has come out is that there was sort of like a bidding war and that Amazon Studios won it. So Ooh, um, that's always my guess is, though. Yeah. And my guess is it's going to be a movie, but it is being produced by Greg Berlanti, who he did Love, Simon. And then he's also, he did Everwood. He did Brothers and Sisters. He's the current show that's called You about the guy who's like a stalker guy. I don't know if you know oh, that, yeah. that TV show. Anyway, yeah, yeah. bottom line, I feel like that this, I feel like this book is in good hands because he does emotional character driven stories really, really well. So this is about a young man. He's like an older teenager, young 20-ish kid named Alex Claremont Diaz. And he is the son of the president of America. And his he has this sort of arch rival in the Prince of England, Prince Henry of Wales. <laughs> as one and does. <laughs> as one does, right? Well, and like they've always been sort of in each other's orbits because, you know, there's like soft diplomacy that happens where you go royal weddings or like yeah. different events. That, so they're always sort of, and they're about the same age. And, and so they've always just been in each other's atmosphere and they don't like each other. And Henry is very straight-laced and brusque and, and Alex is a little bit more laid back and they just they just don't they don't hit it off. So one night they are at this royal wedding and Alex has a little bit too much to drink and is telling Henry basically how he doesn't like him and they end up knocking a cake over at the royal wedding and it's as big <laughs> to do because it's this PR nightmare that the the prince of wales and the first son have been fighting so their pr team come each their individual pr teams together decide that um, they're going to have this plan that they're going to be seeing all these different places where then it'll look like they're friends and it's going to smooth everything over and everybody's going to forget and they just have to do it for this limited amount of time where they do this little tour of they show up several times over the course of several months and they're going to be friends and every, they're going to like plant paparazzi pictures, you know, of them hanging out together and it's going to be great. And everybody's going to think they're friends and nobody's going to have to worry that the U.S. and England are fighting. Their proximity to each other, though, leads to them actually kind of enjoying each other's company and they trade text messages and they're really funny and they have these little inside jokes and then they start making late night phone calls to each other about wherever they are in the world, whatever they're doing. And 
and um, really starting to confide in each other and rely on each other. And so their their fake fake relationship for PR reasons of a friendship turns into a legitimate friendship. And then one night they share a kiss and it becomes evident that maybe it's more romantic than just friendly. All along, maybe their antagonistic feelings towards each other have have held something a little bit deeper. It's just this lovely, charming, funny book. It feels very fresh and modern and like just of the moment it is I mean there are lots of pop culture references and it's clearly supposed to take place like right now basically I really enjoyed it the side characters are really great they had a lot of humor but also a lot of support from their families and 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 they look into sort of like when we talked about the royal we several years ago the book shows being in the limelight like this being in the spotlight is not a good thing always you know yeah. and they they can't necessarily they have all this pressure placed on them to be a certain way or to do a certain thing because it impacts their whole family not just themselves and so the ramifications of that and what what it means if they are out as as gay and so there's a lot to it it's more than just like this super fluffy romance but it's also just a great love story and it gives you a little sneak peek into this world that few of us ever experience and after reading books like this make me happy that I am not experiencing it so that is Red White and Royal <laughs> Blue by Casey McQuiston that sounds so good too I haven't read that one yet but I, I have yeah. it and those those types of books of like behind the scenes of the facade are are so enjoyable and yeah. they pr- maybe shouldn't be as enjoyable after seeing that Meghan Markle um, oh, interview yeah. where yeah. she talks about that, but they still are. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. so I'm really excited for to read this one. Okay, we will be right back with what we're reading this week. This week I'm reading All the Bad Apples by Moira F- Fowley-Doyle and that is a lot of Oi sounds in that name, which are hard for me to do. <laughs> My mouth doesn't move that way. Uh, it's about a young woman named Dina who lives in Dublin, and uh, she's living with her older sister Rachel. And there's uh, it's kind of a complicated family relationship. So there's there's her older sister Rachel, who's 17 years older, and then Rachel has a twin sister named Mandy, and she um, doesn't live with with Rachel and Dina and then they have a father who abandoned the family but is still in the picture they they know him and and he's technically their father figure but he um he basically never visits them and he put them all in school when when they were all um when Dina was very young and and the uh, older twins were teenagers so um they've basically completely on their own raised their little sister after their mother died and the morning of Dina's 17th birthday she accidentally comes out to Rachel because there's been this bullying at school and there are rumors going around with her and and so she finally admits that she's gay and her father is coming home I can't remember the reason why but he walks in and overhears this and he's completely furious and he threatens to disown her and he because he's an extremely conservative person he's very religious and and he he says no daughter of mine will will uh, act like this so uh, Dina ends up going over to Mandy's for comfort and 
while Rachel is the responsible mother figure, then Mandy is the black sheep of the family. And so Mandy tells Dina about this family curse, and she says that all that the bad apples of the family always are revealed when they turn 17. And so when Dina is telling her sort of what happened that morning, then Mandy starts to panic about this curse, and she talks about banshees, which are Irish mythology figure, and she starts to talk about the things that will happen to the bad apples of the family. Dina doesn't really understand what's going on, but Mandy says that she can fix it, but she's completely panicking as she's she's talking about this. So, so the next day, Mandy has disappeared, and the police find her car, and they find evidence that she has jumped into the ocean, and they tell the family that her body probably will never be found just because of the the location that she jumped and and sort of the circumstances around it so dina is sort of incredulous that this has happened and she goes to to mandy's house and ends up finding a letter that mentions a daughter and so she confronts her uh rachel and um then storms off because she realizes that her family has kept all these secrets from her and she just doesn't believe that mandy is dead she thinks that this is all a big hoax from how uh, mandy was acting before um uh, she left and that this all has to do with this family curse. So Stein, signs start to appear um, that Mandy had warned about. So Dina hears a woman screaming and she finds these long silver silver hairs that are caught in bushes and um, it seems like all the things that Mandy had been afraid of are starting to happen to her. So she finds another letter that is telling uh, that that Dina or sorry that Mandy has written telling Dina about their family history and so then the book sort of alternates chapters between the modern day and this 19th century family history that that begins um, kind of in terrible ways so Dina starts to search for Mandy uh, through these letters and they all sort of have a they lead her to new locations um, at the end of every letter so she believes that that Mandy will be at the end that she'll she'll reveal herself at the end um, and that she'll she'll sort of construct this whole family history and also find her sister so the book itself has this very fairy tale sort of quality and there's kind of this feeling of witches that that are interspersed through the book um there's curses and it has this otherworldly setting because it's in the uh, rural areas of of ireland so there are bogs and these windswept moors and it just feels very spare but very uh i don't know if magical is quite the right word but it just has this feeling of another layer of unseen things that are are sort of influencing everything that's happening in the book so um i really like that that uh, type of story so um i was flipping through it and i saw that at the end of the book there's a contact sheet that um gives information for various um sort of social organizations so i'm guessing that the book will deal with some weighty topics i haven't really gotten there yet but i'm assuming that that will come um, up later on but there's really lovely writing and the atmosphere is very lush and I really like that combination of weighty topics with um, sort of beautiful imagery so I'm enjoying it so far and that is All the Bad Apples by Moira Fowley Doyle I'm sorry is this a teen book? Yes it is. Yeah okay that's what yeah, I thought. Yeah teen because just... she's 17 so right that's what I, I guess figured by default. But then I was like, yeah I just didn't know all right, my that I am reading this week is The City of Flickering Light by Juliet Fay. This is historical fiction about three 
people, Irene, Millie, and Henry, who are all part of a traveling burlesque show. And the book opens with them jumping off a train <laughs> so that they don't have to travel to the next bur- next stop for the burlesque show. And they are going to start a new life in Hollywood. And it is 1921, so it's a heyday of silent films and all of that stuff. And they have no money, but they all want to break into the entertainment industry in some way. And so Henry is... Uh, the first one to kind of get a little bit of a break, he gets a job at a studio as a tailor's assistant in the costume shop. And Henry is very, very attractive. So one day he is on set for the for purposes of like fixing a costume and something happens to one of the extras. And so somebody he has made friends with sort of sh- speaks up and says, well, Henry can step in and, and be this extra. And, and so he catches the attention of, people who are like, ooh, look at him. He, he, you know, he's great on film. And so he ends up having a career as an actor. Irene and Millie are both trying to be extras where they go every day and like they sit on this bench all day long and just wait for somebody from the studio to come in and say, I need somebody that looks like you to be an extra in the background of my movie. But then she um, she stumbles upon the, well, she meets this guy and they go out on a date and he suggests that she be in like the typing pool for the the writers submit their scenes and stuff to a typing pool and then the typing pool types it up for the actors to have scripts so he suggests to her like you should do that and so she does and as she's doing that she really gets into the idea of writing and she'll she'll write a scene and think to herself this would make this better these two are kissing it would be better if they're kissing on the edge of a cliff like she thinks of it in that way and so she (laughs) when she is typing up the a scene from one of the female writers at the studio who's whose handwriting is notorious, notoriously terrible, she goes to her to ask because she, nobody can decipher what the title is of the movie and so um, of the script. And so she goes and when she asks her, the woman says something to her about, well, w- did you like the script? And she said, yeah. And she said something like, well, did you think anything could be improved? And so she shares like in a very respectful way. Yeah, you know, I thought that this one thing. And so this woman is sort of a mentor to her and really encourages her to pursue writing. And she does. And so she becomes a writer for silent movies. And then Millie becomes an actress, mainly as sort of like an extra, like a background player. But she's she's got these big eyes and she can like flirt on camera. She can cry on camera. So she's def- she builds a career as well. So although it is all about Hollywood and kind of the glitz and glamour and especially of that era, there's a lot of of fun sort of background information about silent movies and and how they're filming them. Um, It's really a story about the friendship between the three of them and how they support each other through this this whole experience of trying to break into the the entertainment industry. And they each have some Uh, obstacles in their way Henry is gay and he has never never been open about that but in Hollywood that was a bit more accepted than where he had come from and so he develops a relationship with a man and there's some questions about how how accepted or open they can be and and he goes to a gay bar for the first time so so his storyline was was very interesting to me and then um Millie is has an interaction with an assistant director that is uh, pretty brutal. He sexually assaults her, and then she still has to work with him. And so, there, even though this sounds like kind of like a light, fun 
historical fiction, and it is, it is, it's not, it's not incredibly challenging or anything. There are some more serious subjects that are tackled. The characters are likable. It's a, it's a great look at the golden age of Hollywood, and I'm really enjoying it. It's The City of Flickering Light by Juliette Fay. That sounds so good. I know. I like that. I, I love, um, I love any book about early Hollywood I find well mm-hmm. really just Hollywood generally I love I love yeah, like behind the too. scenes stuff like that so yeah me too okay so let's go back and list off everything we talked about this week okay I talked about Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid A Simple Favor by Darcy Bell Persuasion by Jane Austen and what I'm reading this week is All the Bad Apples by Moira Fowley Doyle Okay, and I talked about the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. The first book in that one is The Duke and I. I talked about Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. And what I was reading this week is City of Flickering Light by Juliet Fay. If you'd like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or give us a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or on Twitter and and give us a shout out there and ask questions. Um, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast provider of choice, that would be great. That helps other people find our show. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at wellreadpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this and all episodes. Thank you all for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.